We also teach them about economics of the project because we're really interested in solving problems that will improve the lives of millions of very poor people. You're listening to MIT Club of Boston's podcast. This is your host, Gayatri Aryan. In today's episode, we will take a peek at MIT Energy Initiative, MIT's hub for energy research, education, and outreach. Founded in 2006, MIT helps develop technologies and solutions to deliver clean, affordable, and plentiful sources of energy to efficiently meet global needs while minimizing environmental impacts, dramatically reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and mitigating climate change. Part of MITE is the Tata Center for Technology and Design. Founded in 2012 with generous support from Tata Trusts, one of India's oldest philanthropic organizations. Tata Center was established with the mission to train engineers, scientists, and entrepreneurs to understand developing world issues and create novel solutions that make a real impact in people's lives. With six focus areas of agriculture, energy, environment, health, housing, and water, Tata Center's ultimate goal is to foster sustainable quality of life improvements for people globally in cities and villages, factories, farms, and the halls of government. We have with us today Dr. Diane Rigos, Executive Director of the Tata Center. Dr. Rigos received a BA in Chemistry from Cornell University, a PhD in Physical Chemistry from MIT, an MBA from Northeastern University, and is an alum of HERS Denver 2015. She is also on the board for MIT Club of Boston. Dr. Rigos, welcome. I want to start by saying, wow, what a way to live by MIT's motto of Menset Manus. Tell us about your engagement with Data Center and how did it all start? So um, I was a professor for many years in a college um, in Massachusetts, but I wanted to do something that had more impact. So when my youngest child went to college, I decided to um, look for a job that was really global. And I happened upon this wonderful position at the um, MIT Tata Center. And that's when my journey began. I had never been to India before. And after starting this position, I went to India six times in two years. And I spent at least two months every year in India. So it has been an amazing journey for me. That's awesome. I am sure you're proud of many achievements that the center itself has had in in the years you've led the center. Talk to us about some of the achievements you're extremely proud of, which has impacted the people in developing countries. So the Tata Center was actually started in 2012 by um, Rob Stoner, who is the deputy director of MITEI. So when I came along, it, the Tata Center was really at its peak. We had over 60 projects, and um, we had a team of about over 10 postdocs who were helping us mentor all these graduate students. One of the things about the Tata Center method is that our students all take a course that we've developed over the two years that they are Tata Fellows. So the Tata Fellowship is a two-year experience. And in this course, we help them plan their project and their trips to India so that they can really be most effective. We also teach them about economics of the project because we're really interested in solving problems that will improve the lives of millions of very poor people. If the economics are not right, the technology solution will not be implemented 
because it will not change the lives of all those people. So we think about the financial aspect from day one. And then the other thing that we do is we go to India even before they start their project to sort of get an idea of the landscape for their particular area. So if it's a health project, they'll go visit hospitals in India, and you'll hear more about that from one of my students later on. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that the fellows are actually working closely with the recipients of the research. So I understand that MIT as an institute has a bunch of labs where research is conducted. How is this different from other research areas that are occurring within the institute? So I, I like to sort of make it personal here. When I was a graduate student at MIT, um, I spent five years um, getting my PhD. And at the end of it, I had some papers that were published, but nobody's life changed because of my work. And I always found that very frustrating. So when I heard about the Tata Center and when I started working here, I was so thrilled because I see the students are so much more motivated and inspired because they're solving real problems for real people. And it's a privilege to be able to support their work and help them in this task. And I imagine this goes and applies to many developing countries beyond India. So yeah, our funding um, came from the Tata Trusts. And so the, the, the reason we do a lot of work in India is not just because of the funding, um, but we also have many partnerships in India because the Tata Trusts are very well connected. And so they have introduced us and we work with either some of their teams on the ground or with many other NGOs that they have funded or that they have as partners. Um, we do a number of projects in Africa especially with rural electrification, which is energy is one of our areas. And our goal was to actually expand the Tata Center model to um, other parts of the world like Latin America and get funding from other sources so we could sort of duplicate this model to other places. One of the things that we did during my tenure here was we hired a translational research director and his task was to help the projects that were most advanced in getting to the point of being implemented, which means creating startups. So, um, so far we have about a dozen startups from the Tata Center. And in fact, in 18 months, we had, I think, 11 startups during that period, which is a really high percentage considering how small the Tata Center is. The other thing we're really proud of is we have over 150,000 hours in the field and about, you know, more than 50 patents. That's amazing. I can see the sense of pride in your face, Dr. Rigos. Um, I do want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about your experience with uh, being a woman in, in the STEM space. Being one myself, I know that there are still far and few in between of us. Talk to us about uh, some of the challenges you faced in the hopes that you may inspire a, a few out there. So I'll tell you my, about one of my big passions Well, before I came to MIT. And in fact, I think this is why I, was, I made the transition is when I was a professor, I had been chair of my department several times and I had other positions of leadership. But finally, one day I became president of the faculty. And that was a really challenging position. 
And at the end of the year, um, the president of the college offered me the possibility of getting leadership training. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. After I finished being a leader, he's offering me this opportunity, but I took it. And I went to a leadership institute for two weeks in Colorado, and it was an amazing experience. And it was only for women in academia. And at the end of it, I was so excited. I thought, wow, this is amazing, but we need this kind of training when we are graduate students or postdocs, because I could have used all this training before in my career. So I talked to the um, organizers of the training, and I said, could you please open this up to graduate students and postdocs? And they said, well, you know, that's not our mission. Why don't you go out and do this? So my mission since then, that happened in 2015, has been to try to provide leadership training for women in science. And I've been volunteering with the Association for Women in Science. And we did our first leadership program this past spring from January to June. We trained 25 women in science and we're starting, we're going to continue the program. So this spring we're doing our second round of programming. That's great, Dr. Rigos. Thank you so much for your time today. As Dr. Rigos mentioned, we will also get to hear from her students in this episode. With the focus area of health, next we talk to Kriti about her current project as a Tata Fellow. So Kriti, tell us about your journey to MIT and involvement with Tata Center. I'm a local. I'm from the Boston area. And I did my undergrad at Harvard in biomedical engineering. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to have a research experience at Boston Children's Hospital, where I worked on new methods of delivering breast cancer therapeutics. And for me, this really sparked an interest in oncology research and in women's health. So when I started my PhD here at MIT, I really wanted to work on a project that would both let me continue exploring those interests, but also give me the opportunity to work on something where I could really see potential impact for patients. During my first year here, I joined Michael Sima's laboratory at the Koch Institute here at MIT and joined a project that was focused on changing the way we perform local chemotherapy delivery to the abdomen for ovarian cancer treatment. And I was fortunate enough when I joined to work with an older graduate student who helped us develop a relationship with the Tata Center at MIT. That's great, Kriti. Um, Talk to us about the project you're leading currently at Tata Center. When we think about ovarian cancer treatment, this is a disease that is really poorly managed currently. Patients tend to get diagnosed at a late stage in the disease And so they have tumors that pretty much have spread throughout their entire abdomen. When we treat these patients, we're really looking at both surgery to remove as much of that tumor mass as possible, followed by some kind of chemotherapy to treat the residual disease. And this is the space that we are really looking at innovating in, is changing the paradigm for how we perform this chemotherapy. Currently, most patients will come in every three weeks for a high volume infusion of chemotherapy solution that basically just bathes the abdomen for a period of a few hours before the patients get sent home to recover from this process. And then they're brought back for a total of six cycles. But this solution that we infuse is pretty high dose chemotherapy and it's a high volume. 
So a lot of the patients complain of negative side effects. They have high toxicities. And there's a lot of complications in the administration route as well. So what we end up seeing is a lot of patients not completing all cycles of chemotherapy. And this is really a problem that has been noticed and has led to pretty poor use of this type of local chemotherapy. That's very intriguing, Kriti. How do you manage to do research while you're here in U.S. for a country that's oceans away? Talk to us about how does that collaboration work? Sure. So what we're really working on is a local implant in the abdomen that releases this chemotherapy slowly over time. And what this does is both enables us to provide sustained delivery over a period of months, but also allows us to reduce the dose that we're delivering at any one instant. So we're looking at reducing toxicities, minimizing side effects, and also potentially getting some other interesting scientific contributions as well, where we might actually be priming the immune system to help um, synergistically fight the cancer in addition to what the chemotherapy is doing. So this project really started as a collaboration um, between our lab and physicians at Massachusetts General Hospital, where they came to us and said, if you could find a way for us to do this type of chemotherapy delivery, but reduce the side effects, it would be a game changer for us. And so that is really how this project started and where we began in terms of looking at potential market. But over time, we developed a relationship with the Tata Center. And what that really allowed us to do was to get a first introduction to some of the physicians at Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai. And we work very closely with these physicians um, Um, I travel there twice a year to meet with them and to really understand what the landscape of chemotherapy delivery is there for these type of patients. And what we really learned through the course of this collaboration was that there's both a large patient population that's suffering from this disease that could really benefit from this type of treatment and that these surgeons are actually driving the changes in technology for this patient population and have a pretty large say in terms of changing the treatment paradigm. And so it's been incredibly valuable for us to work directly with the people who are administering this treatment because they give us feedback on the design of our device and really help us understand how this type of an implant could be integrated into the Indian cancer care landscape. That's awesome. And looks like you are looking at the U.S. market as a next step for, for your project. Absolutely. This project started with the collaboration at MGH and the U.S. market is always something that we are interested in looking at. But I think what we've really learned is that there is great potential for this to be adopted both here in the U.S. and in some ways more so in India where the surgeons really have that control over the new technology adoption and are really pushing for this type of technology to help their patients. With agriculture being the primary source of livelihood for about 58% of India's population, Soumya, our next guest, is making some waves in this space through Tata Center. So Soumya, tell us about your journey to MIT and your involvement with Tata Center. 
Thanks a lot for giving me an opportunity to talk today. So uh, I am a fifth year PhD student at the MIT Operations Research Center. And before coming to MIT, I did my undergrad at Cornell University in operations research and engineering. And my basic motivation to apply for a PhD program was to see how I can apply my research, which uses analytics and optimization, to areas that can actually have some significant positive impact on the society itself. So over the past five years, I have worked on a variety of problems that arise in agricultural supply chains with a focus on developing countries. And one major area that we have focused on is smallholder farmers. Smallholder farmers dominate in developing countries. These are farmers who have very small land holdings, so less than 2.5 acres. For instance, in India's case, 70% of the farmers have land holdings which are less than 2.5 acres. So what we wanted to do was see how can we improve welfare for these smallholder farmers who actually are a majority of the world's poorest today. That's awesome, Samia. It seems like you've already uh, started to talk about the project that you're leading at Data Center. So tell us more about it. Uh, definitely. So the project with Data Center started almost two years ago. And our focus was to see how we can collaborate with different partners, including public as well as private organizations on the ground who are working with smallholder farmers. So millions of smallholder farmers suffer from extreme poverty and very low productivity. And one of the biggest challenges and reasons for this problem is limited market access. How do you increase market access for these farmers is something that has been thought upon by various public organizations as well. And one initiative that has gained a lot of investment in recent years is launch of digital agri platforms. The idea is to connect smallholder farmers who are geographically isolated in many cases to traders who might be away from them and also digitize the trade process that suffers from a variety of inefficiencies. So we wrote to a lot of people who are working with these farmers and we were able to connect with the state government of Karnataka as well as some other partners in Bihar who are working on market improving market access for the farmers. So this project has predominantly focused on working with these two partners. That's great. It seems like you are working on the on the current crisis that farmers in India are facing, uh, you know, extreme poverty, which leads to high number of suicides even. So I wish you all the best. Um, hopefully your research succeeds and makes a positive dent to them. It seems to me that your research can apply to other developing countries as well. So I would love to know about, you know, is, is there a thought in that direction? So let me elaborate a bit more on what exactly we did in the research. And that way it will become clear as to how we can apply the insights to other developing countries as well. So the idea was, so these digital agri platforms have been launched with the objective of digitalizing what are the processes that happen in the traditional agri markets. So if you are discovering prices for smallholder farmers who visit the markets, how can you move it to online platforms where there is very little to no scope of manipulation and also where you have increased competition because you are allowing a lot of traders to now participate who might not be physically available in traditional markets. So this is what the initiative in Karnataka did starting in 2014. 
And similar initiatives have actually been launched in many other African nations, including Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, and so on. But what is unclear is uh, whether these initiatives have helped farmers or not. So the first aspect of the project with the Tata Center was on a rigorous empirical impact assessment of these digital agri platforms. Uh, and what we are able to show using our difference and differences analysis is that at least in the Karnataka's case, this platform had a significant impact on a set of farmers, which are growing paddy, so rice, groundnut or peanuts, and maize or corn. But it had no impact on farmers who are growing cotton or lentils. Now, in order to understand why that is happening, we went back to the field and talked with the with a set of stakeholders to understand what might be affecting this differential impact of a platform of this scale. And what we were able to identify is the presence of physical traders in markets plays a significant role in how prices are affected, even after launching these digital platforms. So it is very important to consider operational supply chain and behavioral considerations that affect traders on the ground. Even if you create a digital platform, you cannot take away the most important role which is being played by traders who are physically located in the ground. And you have to consider how to increase competition between these traders if you want to further increase competition. So we were able to launch a new two-stage auction design that incorporates many of these operational and behavioral factors. And this two-stage auction design was used for about 10,000 smallholder farmers and commodities almost of six million US dollars were traded using it. And what we were able to show is that this two-stage auction design can significantly improve revenue for smallholder farmers. Fundamentally, these are insights that apply to other developing nations as well, because many of the digital platforms that have been launched in other countries suffer or have similar characteristics as to the one that has been analyzed in our case with Karnataka. With the focus area of water, one of the basic human rights, let's hear from Piyush, our final guest today, about his work as a Tata Fellow. So Piyush, uh, tell us about your journey to MIT and your involvement with Tata Center. Um, so I have uh, a background in architecture and product design. When I applied to MIT, I did not know that I'll be involved in this project. But because of my previous research experience with data analysis, and a combination of architecture and uh, design research, my professor thought that I'm a suitable candidate for this project. So he got me on board. And that's how I got the Tata Fellowship. That's great. So what project are you working on at Tata Center? Um, so the project is called Jal Swarajya 2, which is a joint initiative of government of Maharashtra and the World Bank. And the project focuses on improving access to sustainable drinking water and sanitation services in rural communities in Maharashtra. And also to strengthen the capacity of water supply and sanitation institutions for improved sector management in the rural areas. That sounds amazing. Um, you being here in Cambridge, how do you collaborate on a problem statement like this being so far away geographically? So this problem is uh, common across many villages in India, not just in Maharashtra, wherein each year several hundred schemes are nominated by Gram Panchayats and their representatives. But the list is not prioritized. 
and only a fraction of the proposed schemes can be sanctioned each year, depending upon the government of India, NRDWP, and the government of Maharashtra budgets. So with the rest of all the, the villages, they are carried over for consideration in subsequent years. So therefore, the soft components of these projects are left out. Therefore, what we are trying to do is, at present, we are trying to produce a multi-year strategic planning prioritization scheme in which governments who are doing poorly in regard to water supply and sanitation are listed and are given immediate attention. Okay. So in terms of the solution itself for the problem statement that you described, um, describe what that is like. So the government of Maharashtra and the GS2 project they invited a team from MIT, School of Architecture and Planning, to help strengthen these prioritization methods uh, with the funding provided by the MIT Tata Center. So MIT team worked with several districts in Maharashtra to develop a planning approach that adds value to existing methods in the following ways. So first, we are focusing on water service improvement. Then we are focusing on enhancing village data collection uh, methods with, with a mobile app which we have developed. We are helping the government to prioritize the village drinking water needs. We are visualizing the district patterns and needs using GIS, Geographic Information System mapping. We are also expanding the capacity building investment for sustainability with the government. We are, we are working on multi-year planning goals and we are also helping the district to screen out the villages which are which are doing poorly in Maharashtra. So I imagine for a data analysis projects such as such as what you just described, a clean, strong data set is is crucial. And you mentioned a mobile app for collecting the data. Are there phones and network available at at the remote parts in the district that you're working in? So surprisingly, yes. Initially, when I got on board in the project, I thought that it might be difficult to get like all data from the villages. But then once we started collecting data, we realized that most of the villages, even in the remote areas, they have mobile connectivity. And uh, so, for example, in, in districts like Raigarh, Pune, Satara, we have reached more than uh, around 90% data. So that's a, that's a great achievement, I would say. India, home to more than 1.3 billion people, will soon have the world's largest population. From megacities to rural villages, India's resource-constrained communities have a wide spectrum of challenges in need of practical solution. And that is where MIT is stepping in. Thank you for listening. We hope to have you back for our next episode. Until then, adios. Adios.